for your grace, your love, your goodness. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We pray for wisdom, Lord, just as we move through the text and that you would help us to um, be good Bereans. And, Lord, that we would move through it and look in the, we'll look the context and all, Lord, and that you would be glorified. Thank you for your goodness, Lord. Give us wisdom this year as we reach out to those who are lost, as we um, are lights and salt. Uh, as long as you have us here, Lord, that we would honor you. And so, Lord, we thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Why don't you turn to Luke chapter 18, please. Luke 18. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. And the message is entitled, Confidence in a Just God. The Gospel of Luke is unique in that it contains more parables than the other two synoptic Gospels, Matthew and Mark. Uh, Luke has 20 parables in his Gospel. Matthew has 16 and Mark has five. Of the 20 parables in Luke, all but two begin with phrases such as a certain man or a certain rich man. Opposed to Matthew 16 that begin with the kingdom of heaven is like. They have two different audiences. Matthew is dealing with the Jew and Luke is dealing with the Greek or the Gentile. Now many of the parables of Luke are unique only of him. Uh, this text that we're going to look at, the unjust judge, is one of them. Only recorded by him. So he's very unique in the way he, the Holy Spirit has allowed him to put his gospel together. So what we want to do is study the parable of the unjust judge here through a threefold lens. Let me read our text. 18, 1 through 8, he says, Then he spoke a parable to them, and that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was a certain city, a judge, who did not fear God nor regard men. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards, he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this woman troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, he will, uh, will he really find faith on the earth? The parable of the unjust judge unfolds for us in three movements, or you can look at it through three lenses. First, we want to look at the context of the parable. Context is always foundational. Then we'll move to the content of the parable. And we'll finish up by looking at the contrast of the parable, which is the proper interpretation. The context of the parable comes first. Notice the parable is um, a continuation of the previous chapter. He says, Then he spoke a parable to them. Them is the disciples. The chapter of division is most unfortunate because often the parable is divorced from this context of the second coming. That's the context. Jesus has warned in the previous chapter in, verses seven, in chapter 17, verse 22, and 26 and 27, He's told His disciples, warned them about the second coming, that it would be like the days of Noah, it would be life as usual, and then the judgment came. And so he's still talking to his disciples. It's still the context of the second coming. And we'll point this out even in, 
um, in the verses ahead of us. Now, in chapter 17, verse 28 to 29, Jesus warns disciples that it would also be like the days of Lot. It would be life as usual, and then, as you know, uh, rain and fire brimstone came down and, and destroyed them. And so the application 1730, it says so in the second coming. Even so, will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed? It's the second coming. Now, the last three and a half years of the great tribulation of those seven years will be one of perilous times such as has never been before. Uh, the end of chapter 17, verse 31, 33 is very clear on this and others. Uh, but there in 31 to 33, specifically in 31, material things at that time will be futile for survival and there will be no place to run. The Lord is coming back to judge the world. The individuals are those that are uh, living again in the last half of this seven-year tribulation. And um, they have not taken the mark of the beast. Um, they're the exception. The majority of the world does. And Jesus... Then, as he returns, he sets up the kingdom. Now, in verse 32 of 17, notice the warning was, remember Lot's wife. So not only like the days of Noah, but like the days of Nod. Lot was taken out by the angel, but so was his wife. Remember her. She looked back. Genesis 19. Her heart was still there in Sodom. Um, the only way to be safe and saved is to trust Jesus. Even if it means losing your life to enter the kingdom. Verse 33 makes that very clear. So he's talking about those who are on the earth prior to his second coming. That's the context. Now, the end of the seven years of tribulation will culminate in the judgment at his second coming as we've seen before. And in verse 34 down to 37, he makes that very, very clear. Chapter of the vision again is unfortunate. Take note in 34 and 36 that this event takes place throughout the world at the same time um, describing it in different time zones, um, day and night. So in other words, that judgment comes, so he returns in one day, and the different things. My son's in Afghanistan right now. It is, if it's 1230, it's 1 o'clock in the morning over there. Right here is day. He's completely on the other side of the world. Okay? It's dark there. Now, some say... That this refers to the rapture. But the judgment is the context. The ones who are taken are taken for judgment in these verses 34 to 36. And the one left, they enter the kingdom. The rapture is not in here. It's completely out of context. This is the second coming. The similar verses are used in Matthew uh, 24, 16 through 18 um, for the rapture. But again, they're out of context. Matthew 24 and 25 is Jewish ground. The church is not in there. And I know that some people use it, but it's wrong. Um, I used to teach that also. I've corrected it. It's wrong. We're just wrong. Now, to be consistent in our interpretation, this probably refers to the carnage of Megiddo at his return in verse 37, as we pointed out in our Sunday night study last time. The disciples asked him, Where, Lord? Jesus said, Where the body is, there the eagle will be gathered together. John the Beloved gives us in the book of Revelation, chapter 19, 18, 
the scene there. He says that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. This is where all the nations are there to try to stop Jesus from setting up the kingdom, which will be futile, of course. Now, the parable was spoken to illustrate then a specific truth about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's the context, okay? So you've got to be a good spiritual hound dog to stay on the trail. Don't go up rabbit trails. When you get little words and ping, they want to shoot you off. Stay on the trail. All parables, as you know, they either do one of two things. Compare or contrast. That's all they do. All parables have one punchline, one truth being taught. It can be in a verse. It can be in two. It'll be real evident. It'll stand out. Many parables often are corrupted and destroyed in their intended meaning by giving individual meaning to every little detail. And it's ascribed to it some symbolic or allegorical meaning, spiritualizing the text, consequently obscuring, contradicting, and destroying the intended meaning. This is done often. This parable usually is taught that you need to be persistent in prayer to have God answer. It's wrong, and I'm going to show you. Okay? So only when a parable maintains the specific details, like when Jesus gave in Matthew 13 the parable of the sower, he gave all the details, the word of God, the seed, this and that, all that. Then we accept it. Now, remember the word parable means uh, to come alongside or, or next to it. Para, alongside, boldly, a ball to throw, okay? So, you take something of life, the judge and this widow coming for to plead her case. A real scenario. Taking something you do know, putting it next to something you don't know, and then putting it next to what you do know, now you'll know what you didn't know. That's what a parable is. Okay? It sheds light on it. Now, the parable has to do with prayer at the time of the second coming then. Look at the second part of verse 1. That men always ought to pray and not lose heart. The Lord Jesus provided the key to those on earth prior to his return. The Lord Jesus himself stated the context of the parable was the second coming. Look at verse 8. I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That's the second coming. Alright? So stay on the second coming. That's the context. Jesus said those saved during the seven-year tribulation are to be praying, looking for the second coming. Now, certainly we're praying, looking for the Lord coming for us in the rapture. But we also know that He's coming in the second coming. We'll come back with Him, okay? Now, the word pray is one of many words that are used for prayer. This word is used for prayer in general with the idea of worship and reverence. But unlike like the word supplication, this word is always used of God never of man. The noun form is used by Jesus in the cleansing of the temple in Matthew 21, 13. He says, My house shall be called a house of prayer because they were allowing people to cut through the temple for money and also merchandising the people. It's also used uh, for the practice of the early church. They continued in one accord in prayer. Acts 1, 14 and 2, 42. So the personal responsibility is indicated by the phrase always ought. It's not a suggestion, a command. The word ought 
means must or necessary as something owed or due, an obligation. Christians are to pray. This is our obligation. This is our duty. This is our, should be our desire to seek the Lord constantly. The same word is used by Jesus when he said in John 3, 3 to Nicodemus, you must be born again. No option. It's not a suggestion. This is referring to the nature of the time, the time of trouble such as never has been or ever will be, the great tribulation. Notice the word always. It means at all time. You may think it's irrelevant, but it's key to the scripture and the parable because of the wrong interpretation. The word here always has the idea and intent not of persistency, but rather constancy and use for, um, by the father of the prodigal son for the other son. He said, son, you are ever, there's the word, with me, Luke fifteen thirty one Doesn't mean he was with him persistently. It means constant. Okay? Now, this indicating a manner and character of lifestyle. Praying to God. Depending, having confidence in Him. The Jews pray three times a day. The Muslims pray. Three times. So we as Christians should be praying all the time. Again, the context is for those waiting for the coming of Christ. We certainly can, can um, teach the principle for all Christians to pray constantly. But the context is for the tribulation saints. So in principle, yes, we're to do it. But the context is very, very specific. Now, this is confirmed as the Lord Jesus pronounced the warning to those who would be on earth in the last days. Listen to the words. And not lose heart. The phrase, not lose heart, means to be utterly dispirited. The idea is to be wearied out, giving up and discouraged completely. The word appears five times in the New Testament for believers to not be weary or faint in the things of life or in doing good. 2 Corinthians 4, 1, 16, Galatians 6, 9, Ephesians 3.13 and 2 Thessalonians 3.13. The warning is clear by the word of Jesus. If they pray constantly, they will not lose heart and be discouraged. If they do not pray constantly, they will lose heart and be discouraged. Again, in principle, we can apply it to all believers, but the context is the specific time of the tribulation period. Jesus said this about prayer. Mark fourteen thirty eight. Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit truly is willing already, but the flesh is weak. Prayer is a matter of our spirit, not our flesh. Religious prayer of the flesh says, look at me. Prayer, this true prayer of the Lord with our spirit as we communicate with Him is a mutual agreement, the direction of His spirit by His word, and there is His will being done. His will is found in His word, so you need to know the word of God. You'll know what to pray for, what not to pray for, you know how to pray. It's real simple. 
Now, the Christian lives as a stranger and pilgrim on this earth. This really isn't our home. This is not our final destination. Listen to the words of Jesus in John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So Jesus is our model. We westernize the church. We usually just talk about God's blessings and the success and how I'm doing this and God opened these doors, this and that. But as I look to the history of the church, it was always trampled on, always persecuted. People died. So we kind of have missed out. We've colored the gospel as Americans in many ways. Listen to Paul. I, I see if you can remember any evangelists um, saying this to new converts in, in Acts uh, fourteen twenty one through twenty two. Um, he exhorts the new believers in Lystra. He says, "And when they had preached the gospel uh, to the city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith, and saying, We must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God.' How big altar call you think you have?" We usually say, well, you're tired of your life. You want God to bless you? It's not evangelism. We're to pray constantly and consistently. Pray without ceasing, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray without, with all, always, with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to the, this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 6, 18. Prayer um, will open our eyes, allow us to see the things of God. Do not trust what you see, but what God reveals to you in and through His Word as you pray. That's what you do. Not your feelings, not your emotions, not what other people tell you. Prayer protects me against anxiety, and yet we do everything until we have to pray. We're just not convinced that prayer works best. So I, got to, I do everything I can. They, well, I'm like, well, let's pray. Nothing else left. Oh, really? Jesus said we are not to be weary or worried about the things of life, what we eat, what we drink, what we dress, and all that. And he gives us a lesson from the birds of the air and the lilies of the field in Matthew six twenty-five through 34. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you, he said. Paul taught that we are to be anxious for nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, and we're to make our requests known to God, Philippians 4, 6. It's when you go in your closet, it's you and Him, no one else. It's not for parading or anything. Everything, the small, the big things, the things of your marriage, the things of your children, things of the day, the things that are going on in this nation, in this country, everything. He gives us the result in Philippians 4, 7. He says, The results of the peace of God, which surpass all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This is what prayer does. We have plenty of examples throughout the scriptures. The context of the parable is the second coming. Very clear. Notice, secondly, we have the content now of the parable. The occasion presented by the parable, presented a court case right out of the daily life of the days of Jesus. Verse 2 and 3. In two, the city and judge are not named, 
there was a certain city, a judge. This is during Herod's wicked reign, as you know. And he appointed these judges, the cities that were under his jurisdiction. And he was corrupt. Most of them were corrupt. They were to hear the cases, present the case, and bring justice. But rarely those things took place. Uh, when society is corrupted and, and, and disintegrating um, uh, virtue and morality and ethics, go right out the window. And it begins at the highest offices. Now the antagonist is presented by his godless character who did not fear God nor regard man. He didn't fear God. Now, when you don't fear God, there's no breaks in your life. You do whatever you want. And you can play the, the part too. You, you move through it. Um, without the Lord, we're like weather vanes. And even in the Lord in the flesh, you're a super weather vane. It just depends which way the wind's blowing. Okay? You just flow with it. This judge felt no accountability to God's authority for his actions in life. This judge did not think he would be judged by God one day for his life. There's a lot of people in our nation like this. In high offices of judges, of, of, of politicians, teachers, uh, pastors. They don't, they don't believe it. I don't know why they call themselves pastors. I don't know why they call themselves Christians. He did not regard man. This judge didn't care for doing justice for man. The judge felt no sense of responsibility towards those seeking judgment. Characterized as unjust as we move along, bringing terror and oppression and frustration to people. Then the protagonist is presented by her destitute and injustice in verse 3. The widow had no husband to provide or protect her. Listen. Now, there was a widow in that city, and it's emphatic in the Greek, that widow. Widows um, were considered very much in the law. Widows were not to be afflicted in Exodus twenty-two twenty-two. Widows were to be given justice. Justice was not to be perverted, and whoever did was to be cursed in Deuteronomy twenty-four seventeen and twenty-seven nineteen. Widows were to be provided from the harvest. The, the corners of the field were to be left for widows and the poor that they can go out and glean and provide for themselves in Deuteronomy 24, 20 through 21. And there are many other things the law says about widows. In the gospel, you see Jesus is very compassionate towards widows. We see it here. When he raised the, the, the young man at Nam from the dead, he was the only provider for his mother who was now a widow. So you see that. Now, the widow sought out this judge to rectify the injustice done to her. It says, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. The widow was not seeking retaliation or vengeance here. The word justice means vindicate me. To vindicate one's right and rectify the wrong done to her. This is what she's pleading, what is fair and just. The imperfect verb indicates that she kept on coming repeatedly, by the way. And the perpetrators are named as her adversary. It is a legal term for an opponent in a lawsuit, the accused of the wrong done to her. It's also used in Matthew 5.25. Now, the situation progressed from bad to good. In verse 4 and 5. 
In verse 4, the beginning, notice the indication is that though this widow came to this judge often and repeatedly, he ignored her case and he would not for a while. Just shined her on. Indifferent. Now, we're not told the number of times she confronted him, nor the manner in which he responded to her, nor the length of time. Some think that perhaps he was attempting to extract a bribe from her, as much of the custom of that day was. In Acts twenty four twenty six, Felix kept bringing Paul up before him, hoping to give him some money. You know, when we used to go down in TJ in the 60s or, or that when I was younger, you know, they call it la mordida, the bite. You can get down there and some of the cops stop you, he's giving some bucks. That, they want some money. That's what it is, a bribe, okay? Now, we're told all we need to know. It is simply this, that he refused to right the wrong that was done to her. That's the key thing. Now, Notice the consternation of the situation regarding the widow's persistency and refusal to go away caused the judge to get justice for this widow. Now, when you hear the word persistency, don't let it throw you off and think that that's the key. It isn't. That's what people have done with this parable. Notice the judge began to feel the pressure anxiety of the widow's persistency, causing them to reflect on his first decision. But afterwards, he said, within himself. The judge considered the unyielding determination of this widow and spoke to himself silently. You've done that, I've done that. Most of the time, it's not good to talk to yourself. You're not good company. It's better to talk to God, okay? Because you give yourself some crazy advice. Um, There was only one option left here. He's already tried the one. The judge noticed, declared to himself that the reason he would get justice for this widow was not due to his change of mind about God or man. Though I do not fear God nor regard man. He still believes the same. But, because he loves himself, he doesn't hold to his principles or whatever. If it's inconvenient, we just kind of just close one eye and do it. Who cares? The fear of God was not his motivation or reason for getting justice for this widow. He says it clearly. The care of this defenseless widow was not his motivation or reason to correct the injustice done to her. He says it clearly. Notice the judge declared to himself the reason he would get justice for her was that he, ready, cared for himself. He had reached the end of his patience. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her. The word trouble means to cause him discomfort, to be bothered. It's used by Jesus towards his disciples when they complain about the ointment that Mary poured on Jesus. He says, why you trouble a woman? Don't trouble her. Matthew 26, 10. 
He did not want to experience any further personal embarrassment or inconvenience from the widow here, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Present tense. She was quite a lady. She just kept coming. She would not go away. By the way, the word weary there, it means to beat black and blue. Literally to give a black eye and knock me out. <laughs> it's only found one more time in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians nine twenty-seven, where Paul says that he beats himself under the eye, giving himself a black eye to discipline his body, lest he be disqualified from preaching the gospel. The only two times it's found in the New Testament. You remember the servant of Elisha? As they were in the city and the Syrian army surrounded them. And the servant Gehazi went out and saw the Syrian army and he came in. Alas, my Lord, we're dead. Elisha prayed to the Lord. Lord, open his eyes. More are with us than with them. It was prayer that opened the eyes of the servant. This is exactly what will happen when we go to God in prayer. If we will wait upon Him. If we go to Him. The Christian has always suffered at the hands of the world. This is the history of the church. The first century church suffered tremendously. We have the record through the book of Acts. As the second century moves on into the third century, uh, through the movement of Constantine, as he, he kind of just forced everybody to be a Christian, which was the beginnings of the Catholic Church. Christians have suffered greatly, tremendously since then through her centuries of oppression and absolute rule. The Christians in every nation and age have been imprisoned, beaten, tortured, robbed. Their properties have been taken possession. Their possessions have been stolen from them. They've been burned at the stake. They've been hung, decapitated, and executed. Both by the Catholic Church and by tyrants and people who just can't stand Christians. Real simple. So we have kind of a tweaked perspective about Christian history here in the United States. <laughs> All I know about suffering is what I read. I've never suffered for Jesus. I really haven't. John says, quoting Jesus, John fifteen twenty, Remember the words that I say to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep your words also. So Jesus is really our example. As we look to his life, we should expect exactly what they did to Jesus and how they treated him. Hmm. The Christians that live in countries that do not fear the God of the Bible will not regard man, but they even will target Christians above others. Certainly back when I grew up, the Soviet Union, the USSR, declared herself to be an atheist nation. She oppressed, killed Christians. China, Mao's cultural revolution, that's the first thing he did, get rid of the teachers, the Christians, and the books. All of a sudden now China's all after capitalism. They see that the cultural revolution didn't work. I wish we would learn. We're going through a cultural revolution right now, which is idiotic. It'll disintegrate our society. It will collapse us economically. 
All Muslim countries oppress and punish everyone who's a Christian. They're not allowed in the country. If you proselytize a Muslim, you're dead, and so are they. Simple. End of conversation. The entire nation of the world, all of them, will be against Jesus as he returns. Listen to the preview of Psalm 2, 1 through 5. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves um, uh, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. And he sits in the heavens shall laugh, meaning Jesus. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure that you get that Jesus would rather forgive than bring judgment when he brings judgment is reluctantly Isaiah says it is a strange manner for God to act when the judgment comes God is love he sent the son that you might not die that I might not die we in the United States have been privileged to have freedom of religion and the First Amendment right of free speech from the inception of our nation. But we are seeing the tide changing all around us dramatically and very fast. Christianity is attacked constantly by the public school education and universities to indoctrinate people in humanism and evolution, the religion of America, anti-God, anti-Christian. Christianity is not tolerated any longer in the public square life. It's attacked every day. There's a new court case every day to take a cross down, to take a name down, or whatever. Judicial courts are no longer being guided by the truth of the scriptures or the principles of the Bible, as previous Supreme Court judges and many others were guided and depended on. It's all recorded in history. The legislators are bent on opposing and eliminating to the point of eradicating all and every element of Christian faith from our nation. The progressive liberals began in 1900. They met together and they've been progressively pushing forward and they've just about accomplished it in 110 years. Have we forgotten the tumultuous years of the 60s of Watergate? Where young people had no confidence in government anymore? You had the Vietnam era as soldiers and veterans were being called baby killers when they were defending and fighting for this nation. You had riots, you had demonstrations in universities, Penn State, some students were killed by the National Guard. The drug and sex culture... And yet God used that dark time for one of the greatest revivals, the Jesus movement through Pastor Chuck Smith. So the darker it gets, the more I'm encouraged that God may pour out a spirit in another awakening. Whether he will or not, that's his sovereign choice. But history tells me that the awakenings came in a time of great depravity and society was so decayed. 
men have forgotten about God. Listen to Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom is for from generation to generation. <clears throat> All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to His will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Daniel 4, 34-35. This is after that seven seasons of insanity. He came to confess God. I expect to see Neb in heaven. <laughs> the content of the parable is justice at His second coming. Notice thirdly, you have the contrast <clears throat> of the parable, which is the correct interpretation. The common and usual interpretation of the parable is wrong. They make it a comparison. They make the judge to be God. All that the judge is, God is not. All that God is, the judge is not. The judge did not fear God nor regard man. God commands fear and regards the best for man. The judge used his power and authority to care for himself. God uses his power and authority for the care of sinners and the oppressed and the destitute. The judge is bound by his sin nature, used only for his own interest. God is bound by his perfect nature and attributes for the interests of others, sinners and saints. They take the punchline from verse 5. That the widow was persistent in her asking. Therefore, they say the parable teaches the believer must be persistent in prayer for God to answer. Well, look at verse 5. Yet because this widow troubles me, I will adventure lest by her continued coming she wearies me. That's not the punchline. It's the content. Missing the context of the second coming, missing the punchline altogether, misinterpreting the parable by the wrong punchline, and misapplying the punchline, ascribing it to prayer in general regarding persistency. To make God out to be one who must be pestered to do what is just, charges His holy justice. So you have to pray to God to remind Him or to force Him to punish evil? It's silly. But everybody teaches it. Most, 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 most majority of people teach that. It's much like the parable that um, we saw in chapter 11, verse 5 through 8, where the... Uh, the man's friend comes at midnight and asks for bread and he didn't want to get up. And the majority of people teach that's also persistency in prayer. Keep on knocking. It's not. It's a contrast. If you make it a, a comparison, then you make God out to be like that man. God is reluctant. He's hoping you go away. Are you willing to accept that interpretation? Of course not. 
They're both comparisons. God will act justly without anyone having to pray for perfect vindication. Now, the correct interpretation of the parable is given by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. So there can be no mistake here. Verse 6 to 8. Look at 6. The Lord Jesus pointed out the key. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust said. Not what the woman said. Not the woman's persistent words. Nothing but the words the judge said to himself. That he would do justice for her. His motive is irrelevant. It's the fact that he did justice. He vindicated her. The Lord Jesus gave the punchline making the application in seven. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bear long with them? The question is a rhetorical one. There is only one possible answer. Yes, God will avenge his own elect, for he is righteous. The judge was unrighteous. God is just. The judge was unjust. The parable points back to the previous chapter, as we have shown, to illustrate the just and certain vindication of his elect in the great tribulation, waiting for the second coming. Chapter 17, 22 and 24. Some of the elect will be praying confident and constant, day and night to him, even though God bears long with them. I say some because the end of the last verse will show us that not all. Though all evil is not dealt with by God immediately, none will escape the evil done to believers in the great tribulation. God will execute perfect justice. Not that they keep on asking as if God was unwilling and needed to be persuaded, as if he was reluctant to listen. No, never. Listen to the words of G. Campbell Morgan. I'm quoting him. They're excellent words. So Christ is saying, we ought always to pray, and when we pray, there is no need for us to keep on as though God were unwilling to listen. He is always listening. In his words, lay the emphasis on the word, always pray. Not words necessarily, not words at all, but on attitude of life, always to pray. Now this doesn't mean that we're not to pray persistently about a matter. But in this context, that's not what it's teaching. Are we clear on that? Okay? There are other principles that teach us that. Okay? The Lord Jesus confirms the punchline and reveals the ungodly character of His second coming. When He comes. Verse 8, the beginning. I tell you that He will avenge them speedily. Jesus reiterates He will avenge those who have accepted Him during these Seven-year tribulation, and again the focus towards the end there is coming. The manner is said to be speedily, suddenly. The same word is used in Revelation 22, 6, the last chapter. He appears suddenly, speedily. Jesus revealed the ungodly character on the earth at His second coming. Listen, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He really find faith on the earth? 
One last rhetorical question here. With only one possible answer again. The answer is no. No. This points back to the end of the previous chapter. He's still talking to his disciples. As he had been telling them about the time of distress. Jesus did not say that there will not be faith. For there will be many to be saved. There will be a great revival. But rather a particular faith. Those who confidently believe God will avenge his people. This is the faith the widow exhibited. Are we clear on this? This is confirmed by the article that is found. The faith on the earth. The one exhibited for vindication. That's what he's talking about. Because during the last seven years, specifically the last three and a half, there's a lot of people going to be saved. Many are going to die. But faith that is confident believing that God will vindicate will be rare, Jesus said. Now, you're going to fault him? He's God. (laughs) He's telling you what's going to be happening at that time. The implication being this kind, again, will be rare. Wow. It has been said that God acts regarding prayer in three ways. There are some things God does only through prayer. There are other things God does without prayer. And there are things that God does in spite of prayer. You say, then why should we pray? Because you're commanded to pray. Because prayer is your breath line. It's like breathing. We're in communication with God. He ministers to us. Now, He is sovereign. Some things He will not do apart from prayer. Some through prayer and some in spite of prayer. Then how do you know when to pray? Don't worry about it. Pray. Until God says, stop praying. He did that to Jeremiah. Don't pray for these people anymore. Okay? Now, if you're a Calvinist, let me throw a monkey wrench in here. You believe that everything is decreed by God. There's nothing that can happen apart from the decrees of God. And those decrees cannot be altered. If that is true, then you just destroy prayer. I don't have to pray. Now, I don't have to pray to God to, to, to vindicate the evil. But that's the only thing I don't have to pray about. <laughs> The rest I do. So you be careful about the decrees of God. And the Calvinistic mentality. Okay? It makes everything futile. Evangelism, prayer, everything else. Because what's going to be? It's going to be. Really? Wow. Do you have steadfast confidence that God will vindicate His saints and vindicate them of all the evil done to them? I do. I believe that wholeheartedly. No one gets away with anything. Not even us who have been forgiven. We have suffered great loss in many ways. But by the grace of God, we're able to look to Him and own up to that and not look back and go forward knowing that He's made us new creatures and that we verify this new birth is genuine because we're not living the way we used to. That's the grace of God. 
God is omniscient. He knows all things. He doesn't need information from anybody. He's omnipresent. He's all present everywhere at the same time. This morning when you showered, He saw you. He sees everything. He hears everything. He's omnipotent, all-powerful. He's not threatened by anybody. No one impresses him. Isaiah has a great scripture as he challenges the pagans and their gods. Isaiah 45, 21 says, Tell and bring forth your case. Uh, this is a court case, tribunal case. Yes, let's the, uh, take, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from the ancient of times? Who has told it from, the, from that time? Have not I, the Lord Yahweh? There is no other God besides me, a just God, a Savior. There is none besides me. Bring your case before me. Present your evidence. Tell me the things before they happen. So when they happen, I can tell you, declare you God. No one's ever taken him up on it. He's wiped out everybody at this point. <laughs> We need to pray for those who reject the gospel now in the age of grace and they will be left behind at the rapture. Some of our family, some of our friends, some of our wives and husbands and children. That they might repent and look for the Lord and wait for His coming. Many will be given over to the lie, Paul says to the Thessalonians, which is possibly an indication that they will not be able to accept once they reject during the age of grace. Not absolute, but it's a possibility. We're not sure. Many will come to know Jesus, thank God. But many, many will die under the hand of the Antichrist for rejecting the mark and accepting Jesus. Peter puts it this way, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I'm so glad Jesus didn't come back December 31st. We have another opportunity to preach the gospel and see people come to Christ. But I'm looking for His coming. You understand? <laughs> I know He's coming. Paul the Apostle told the Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 10, he says, Which is manifold evidence of righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in the flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God, and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified in His saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Jesus is coming a second time for judgment. He's first coming for His church. Then we're coming back with him for judgment. The contrast of the parable is that God does not have to be wearied in prayer to execute justice at his second coming. <clears throat> and so, this is our study of the parable <clears throat> of the unjust judge, the threefold lens. The context of the parable is the second coming. The content of the parable is justice at the second coming. And the contrast of the parable is God does not have to be wearied in prayer 
to execute justice at the second coming. Words of our Lord. Don't confuse them. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, your love. We pray that you would just continue to minister to our hearts. We thank you for your word. Help us to be good students, Bereans, Lord. And Lord, that we would um, allow this word to go deep in our hearts. Help us to trust you for all things and that we would never take things into our own uh, matters or hands, Lord, but to call upon you and to trust you for these things. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. Jesus became sin for you. If you believe that and that he rose from the dead, then you can call upon him. It's called repentance. And he will forgive you and give to you eternal life. There is no other way you can enter heaven. There is no other way for you to escape eternal damnation of God. So it's not just a matter whether you want to live eternally. You're going to live eternally. The question is where? Heaven or the lake of fire? It's a choice. Your choice, not God's. If you see yourselves as sinners by the grace of God, call upon Him. This is your prayer if you want to repent. And He will save you right now. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.